This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. Good morning, and that was Blondie with Dreaming. Welcome to One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show here on BCFM, where we talk all things environmental in Bristol, the UK, and the rest of the world. My name's Shona Jemfrey. I'm presenting this programme for several months for the amazing Penny Southgate, who's having a well-deserved break. We're going to be looking at some news stories related to the environment, both in Bristol and further afield. We're going to play some tunes. And today we have a really exciting interview with Marion Hill, an illustrator and insect enthusiast. Marion, how are you? I'm fine. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me along. Well, thank you for coming. Um, so welcome to One Love, One Planet. Thank you for joining us. Settle in for what is sure to be an interesting hour. Um, we're just going to start, as we always do, by covering some news stories. So um, there's a headline in Al Jazeera saying, Judge sides with youth activists in a historic U.S. climate crisis case. In a first-of-its-kind trial, the U.S. youth accuse Montana of violating their rights through lax environmental policies. A federal judge in the United States has sided with youth activists who accuse Montana state agencies of violating their constitutional rights to a clean and healthy environment. In a ruling on Monday, District Court Judge Kathy Seeley found that the policy the US state uses to evaluate requests for fossil fuel permits is unconstitutional because it prevents the state government from weighing the harmful effects of greenhouse gas emissions. The Montana trial is the first of its kind in the United States. It adds to a small but growing number of legal decisions around the world that have established a government's duty to protect citizens from climate change. Monday's ruling requires the Montana legislature to find a way to bring the policy into compliance, but that is set to be a slow process in a Republican-led state heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. Um, The case is the latest in a trend of youth-led climate lawsuits. In March, a Swedish court gave the green light to a climate lawsuit filed by 20-year-old activist Greta Thunberg and others alleging the government's approach to stemming rising temperatures was insufficient. In April, a judge in Ontario also ruled that Canada's courts may consider a lawsuit brought by seven youth activists charging that the government's response to climate change infringed on their human rights. So that's quite interesting. It's a new frontier that climate activists are fighting the government on. Another headline in Al Jazeera updating on the Hawaii wildfires, um, the deadliest blazes in the US in more than 100 years. At least 96 people are reported dead, but US officials predict the toll will mount as search efforts continue. Thousands of survivors have been displaced by the blazes, the worst of which destroyed much of the historic town of Lahaina, and people across Maui have put out desperate pleas for information about missing loved ones. The exact cause of the blazes has not been determined, but with much of the world seeing record-breaking temperatures globing during the climate crisis, wildfires have become more frequent and more difficult to contain. Sirens stationed around the island never sounded, residents have said, and widespread Widespread power and mobile service outages hampered other forms of alerts. And a final update um, on your news, a Bristol headline. Uh, This appeared in Bristol Live um, a few days ago. It's a map showing what the UK would look like after all the Earth's ice melts. Um, So scientists have produced a map to show what the UK would look like when all the Earth's ice has melted and it's bad news for Bristol and London. According to the research produced by the uh, Hazard Research Centre in London, many UK cities would be submerged underwater, including Edinburgh, 
Edinburgh, Newcastle, Plymouth, Norwich, Peterborough and Bournemouth. Um, around 2 million people be displaced. The biggest city left in the UK would be Birmingham. If all the ice melts, it's estimated that the sea level would rise by 84 metres, which is massive. In the London area, much of Southwark, Lewisham, Greenwich, Tower Hamlets, Bexley and Barking and Dagenham would be underwater, along with large areas of South Essex and North Kent. Um, as Bristol would be flooded, most ta- coastal towns along the Bristol Channel would also be lost. Bath and Exeter would be the biggest cities left in the southwest. Um, the there, yeah. So that's a extreme. Uh, it, it is obviously an extreme event. All the Earth's ice melting, but it, um, you know, I currently where we seem to be on that track. I don't know. Have you seen those sorts of maps before, Marion, where it sort of shows the. F- potential future flooding yeah it's difficult to comprehend that really isn't it but i grew up near the somerset levels so i'm guessing that they're terribly at risk yeah i'm it doesn't show in detail here but yeah it looks like bristol's mostly underwater in this map um wales is sort of okay and then obviously the mountainy areas but yeah a lot of places that we know and love and live in um would be underwater so yeah um needing to yeah needing to people governments everyone needs to crack on sort this out because it is yeah um a, a glaciologist at the university of exeter said that he thinks the scientific community has been shocked by this season's lack of sea ice it's much lower than has happened in previous years we do seem to be going across a tipping point which is um yeah pretty scary so um yeah we need to do something about it um but when we come back after playing some music we're going to focus on something we can do locally because it's very overwhelming sometimes to look at the climate crisis um and we're going to talk a bit about climate anxiety but we're going to talk also about things that we can do to make a small difference locally and some of the amazing things in the natural world that we that we love and that we want to to do things about so um yeah we'll play some music and we'll be back with you very shortly Good morning and welcome back to One Love, One Planet, the environmental radio show here on BCFM. We are here with Marion Hill, an illustrator and insect enthusiast who's now going to tell us all about her work. Um, Yeah, I'm looking here in the studio. I wish I could show you guys. There's some beautiful uh, collages she's brought in illustrating different insects, but she's going to tell us all about it because they are one of the smallest, obviously, animals that we encounter, but some of the most important probably. But yeah, Marion, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, you're right. So many insects are really small. They're so easy to overlook, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so... Just, just yeah, get nice and close to the microphone so we can hear you. So um, tell us sort of how you got into illustrating insects, because it's not something you've always done. No, I think like most people, I was really worried about climate change and I was starting to get extremely anxious and I couldn't sleep and I was worrying a lot. And I've worked as an illustrator for a long time now, over, over 20 years, and mostly working for magazines and making book jackets. And I thought that I should really use my skills as an illustrator to try and help in some way. Um, and I hit on insects. So through lockdown, I spent all those hours where we were at home instead of commuting, crawling around my really small city garden in <laughs> Bath and looking at how many species I could find. And um, I thought it would take me a couple of weeks. And I thought, I don't know, maybe there'd be 20 species in our garden. 
Well, I'm over 200 collages in. What? Not, Just from your garden? Well, not of all of them are actually in our garden, but in the surrounding area of Bath. So, yes, I'm totally amazed. And that's just the start. So for every insect I collage, I found 10 more that I should collage if I had the time. <laughs> um, and I'm really lucky because I've had the help of a real expert entomologist who's based in Bath called Mike Williams. Um, because I don't know very much, I realised I needed some extra support. So he's been helping me with species lists helping me to identify species that I don't know what they are, help me to understand the species and make sure that my illustrations are accurate and then I can use them as spot guides for the local community. Amazing. So, um, yeah, so what, what, what I, I, I guess, and then what, what, how, what are you doing with these collages? You know, where, uh, where are you taking them? Because you're not just sort of keeping them to yourself. No, there'd be no point in that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I realised that if... People are like me, they don't realise what's in our urban cities and how much diversity of the wildlife we've got. So the idea was that if I put these illustrations onto posters and I put them in public places like schools and parks um, with an explanation of why insects are so important, then the general public, like myself, will start understanding how important insects are and understand how easy it is to nurture and protect them. Yeah, and and why collages in particular? Like, there's so many art styles out there. Well, when I left university, I was really broke, to be honest. (laughs) And it was in the days before computers. I didn't have a computer because it was the late 90s. Um, And so I started collaging because it's a really cheap way of making illustrations. And people just give me old magazines, and I chop them up, and I stick the bits down. Um, And it works really well now because nobody's got any money anymore have they (laughs) so if I go into schools which I'm doing more and more and I run um, insect collage workshops people can just bring in old magazines and all you need is a pair of scissors and a glue stick and a few old magazines and the kids can make really beautiful illustrations using exactly the same technique that I use yeah I never thought about sort of the affordability of it before but you're right like that is one of the cheapest materials the cheapest ways you can do art Um, and so yeah why, why insects in particular Well, as we touched on before, they're really overlooked, aren't they? And I kind of knew the basics, but I'm realising how bad my education was um, that I didn't know some really basic facts, like... Um, we've got dung beetles in the UK that break down all the waste that they find on the fields and they're not the same as the African dung beetles that push balls of poo along they tend to bury the poo but if you go on a walk and you see a cow pattern it's got kind of holes in the top that usually means that there's insect life going on inside that cow pattern and insects are using um, working together to break down all of that matter and and they bring it into the soil and that means they fertilize and they help keep the soil rich I didn't know that and I didn't know that we have insects that help us naturally with pest control so you have ladybirds that eat aphids most people kind of understand that but I had no clue that there's ground beetles that eat slugs and snails um so if you nurture those insects in your garden then there's no need to use so many sprays and um, chemical controls on your garden and so how do you sort of how do we nurture them in our garden well I really started by not knowing what I was doing at all and I've actually just kind of left the garden I have to marshal it so I control the bullies like 
bindweed takes over very quickly doesn't it so I do sort of pull out the bindweed but I don't use any chemicals at all and I let the what we describe as weeds I guess native flowers come in and and seed and flower and I let my grass heads flower and grow long and I've been amazed at how many grass bugs I've got I've got hundreds of slow worms now living in our garden and they feed on insects which means that I'm definitely producing lots of slugs and snails and then insects that feed on them and so the garden is thriving um it's really exciting yeah and and you mean you were saying to me off air it doesn't just have to be a garden like people can do this with smaller patches of earth as well totally I was talking to an entomologist who is based in London and he said in the 80s after the war had ended but there hadn't been a lot of of sort of regeneration yet there were a lot of brownfield sites in central London in the dock areas and they were thriving with wildlife because those places they have a lot of rubble and hidey holes and places for wild plants to grow and so it turns out that those brown field sites had more diversity in than a lot of nature reserves in urban in rural settings oh, really? isn't that amazing so you could have a, a an area in a city that doesn't look like a traditional garden but it can still be a really good haven for insects if you leave the things that they need so things like ground cover um leaf litter when you say grind to cover what do you mean by that well we have a tradition of hoeing between plants you know that kind of 1980s version of a garden where all your plants were in neat rows and then you hoed and weed in between the plants if you don't do that and you let plants cover the entire bed whatever those are then insects and creatures can crawl through the undergrowth and they're safe so yeah just letting the cover grow and letting your grass grow and and when leaves fall like not raking them up straight away sort of leaving them Precisely. I actually have a great big leaf patch and I try not to sweep anything away now. I have a massive pile of sticks, dead logs, a tiny pond. And I guess in an old fashioned way, some people would say I'm really lazy and my garden's a mess. But it's full of wildlife and flowers and it's buzzing and humming with lots of insect life. And and so insects are important. So obviously we know pollinators are important and dung beetles are important. And you said that you have an entomologist who helps you as well. Is that right? Yes, he's great. Because I, like I said, I didn't know very much. So he, he gives me amazing species lists. And one of the things he's done is link a list to... Um, sort of hated plants I think hated plants well things like dandelions I think people are starting to change their impression like ragwort dandelions nettles and ivy are are plants that lots of people used to pull out of their garden very actively and he's put together lists of all the species of insect that actually rely on these plants and it's really helpful to see how many creatures actually need the plants that we've been pulling out Oh, I I didn't even think about that there would be creatures like that specifically wanted that. Like, I think dandelions are really pretty, but I never thought there'd be creatures that like specifically wanted them to sort of, yeah, to be around. Um, But yeah, and so what sort of response have you been getting to the artwork? You've been doing it for a couple of years now, is that right? It's phenomenal. I've never had a project like it. I've had so many people contact me and want to use my material. Um, I go into schools and do collage workshops. 
I'm working with lots of different groups, like um, I'm doing a project with the Bath Parks Department at the moment. And um, what, What's that? What project's that? So we're working on a project called Bee Bowl Pollinator Scheme, where we're um, redesigning um, eight different small open spaces in the area of Baines and trying to make them better habitat for insects, but also involving the local community in that design so they understand what we're doing and the reason that grasses are being left to grow longer because it's not due to laziness or it's because um, we're trying to help insects thrive. Yeah, because I suppose sometimes it can you can look at like a big patch of grass and be like, oh, that looks quite messy. Like, why has nobody mown that yet? But what you're saying is sometimes that's deliberate to encourage the insects to, yeah, to, to, to help the pollinators because there is, we know that the bees are under threat at the minute, aren't they? They are, and it's not just bees. It's what, what I, again, I didn't realise is uh, bees aren't the only pollinators. There's a host of beetles, moths, all kinds of insects actually pollinate our our plants, and it's really important that we protect them because the numbers are going down so much. Now, I remember going on holiday when I was a kid in the 80s, and my dad had to stop our car every single service station to mop off all the bug splats off our car windscreen. And now we can drive from Bristol to Edinburgh and we don't have to wipe the windscreen once, which means there's far fewer insects flying. Um, and that I find really, really worrying. And is that because of pesticides or something else? or I think it is largely to do with the way we're managing um, our countryside. And I can't control that, but I can control what I do in my garden. And I know from this project that since I started, um, the diversity and the insect life in my garden has gone up uh, really massive. Amazing. And and so what, yeah, what would, if people are interested, we'll play some music in a minute and then come back to this, but if people are interested and they want to look up this, um, just tell people how they can find your artwork online. Okay, so I've got a new website, which is called buzzandscuttle.com, all gr- one word. That's a great name. So buzz <laughs> is B-U-Z-Z and then and, and then scuttle is S-C-U-T-T-L-E. Yes, that's right. Buzzandscuttle.com. And if you go on that website, I've got free resources for teachers and people that want to download um, A4 printouts. So you can have stuff that will help you if you want to run a collage workshop or you want to spot things in your garden. Lovely. And we'll talk more about your school, um, your school work and the work you do in classrooms shortly. But we're just going to play a bit of music first. This is Dirt and Soul. That was Dirt and Soul um, by... Dr. Meeker, um, yeah, we are One Love, One Planet. We are here in the studio with Marion Hill, who's an illustrator and insect enthusiast. And while we've been off air, we've just been admiring her work um, because she's brought in some of her illustrations into the studio. You can check them out at buzzandscuttle.com. And she's just showing me, this, this is one of the bugs. This is the bug you're working on at the minute. Moment. I'm illustrating shield bug babies um, and people can call them stink bugs or oh are they the same thing yeah so oh, they're wow. these little little sort of flat backed bugs that you find in the garden and if you scare them they let off a stink but again uh. well I didn't I didn't realize when I started the project that they go through a different metamorphosis process than butterflies in that they don't have a stage wherein they're in a chrysalis okay like in a cocoon sort yeah. of thing and the amazing thing is that when they hatch from an egg their shells can't expand very well at all so okay. when they grow too big for their skin they split the skin and they walk out looking totally different 
So, they, so it's it's not just like it's not like just with snakes where they grow the same skin under their old one. They literally like change their shape or change their form. They change their patterning. Oh wow! And their, and their shape slightly, but the patterning are mm. really a, a lot. Mm. So a green little shield bug can go through six different outfits oh, before wow. they get to being a grown up <laughs> insect. So I've realised that I'm not just illustrating the adult shield yes. bugs. I've now got to illustrate all the the different forms of that because people will find those forms in the garden and think they're different insects when actually they're 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 the the same same. thing and you you were saying to me that a lot of um insect guides don't illustrate the babies don't illustrate the larvae or whatever they're called on their way to becoming adults yeah and isn't that a strange thing if we only put pictures up in our house of our grown-ups in the family and we didn't put baby (laughs) photos up isn't that strange yeah so an insect will spend an awful lot of its life cycle as a grub or a larvae or a caterpillar and we tend to think that part of their life cycle is pretty icky Mm. and a lot of people if they dig into the earth and they find a grub they will squash it without realising that they're actually squashing a beautiful insect that they would admire later. So I'm trying to start now illustrating the baby insects as well so I can explain to people that if they squash those grubs that they're actually harming insects. And how long does it normally take you to um, illustrate one I, I, one insect or one illustration well at the moment I'm aiming for two a day and wow. sometimes I get behind in fact I'm behind quite often because I've got such a long list that feels like a lot though because I mean people listening can't can't see but um Marion's brought in one of her posters of pollinators and it's just the detail on them and you can't you can't tell that they're collages. Like at first glance, you think they're pencil drawings or something. But the the level of detail, like the wings, the butterfly patterns, like it must become headache inducing at times being like trying to get it right. (laughs) Yes, it does. And the other thing that I spend a lot of time doing as well as the actual collages is photographing textures now because people give me secondhand magazines, but they're just not enough because I'm producing (laughs) so many. So I tend to crawl around and photograph things that look look like insects so old tires bollards boiled sweets buckets <laughs> and then I get the photos printed out and I use them as collage material um so um I'm, I'm often to be found photographing strange surface textures <laughs> <laughs> people are like oh what's that lady doing and but yeah because the detail on the wings I mean how do you get that right ah uh, this is a mistake I made early on because I didn't know what I was doing whereas I I didn't realize how important wings wing structure is in many flying insects in that it, then it doesn't differ like a butterfly's pattern on its wings they're really more like um, a a very important uh, always the same design so I'm not explaining that very well but there is a website called Draw Wing and you can go on and put the insect name into the website and it shows you a map of the wing structure so for example a bee or a hoverfly the veins on their wings are really important to get right yeah, because they're really intricate. It's something that like you maybe don't think of until you like maybe find a dead insect and you look at. But yeah, it's sort of almost like a stained glass window, all these little pieces together that make up overall a big wing. That's totally right. Yes. And for me, it matters because I'm using these illustrations as a spot guide and I want to get it right because entomologists 
quite rightly want the illustrations <laughs> to be accurate so um, Mike helps me and there's also a host of people on Twitter who um, I used to put illustrations up and they'd tell me if I made errors and help me get things right incredible and and yeah so these posters so they've some they're being displayed in different places in Bath you said you've worked uh, with Keep Northern Ireland Beautiful to display it there and if if any um organizations are listening are like oh we have a small patch of grass it'd be quite nice to display a poster here so people can start looking out for insects how would they get that poster how would they get in touch with you well i've got a poster shop on my website and like i already said i've got the free a4 downloads as well if you want something small or if you want to just email me and the contact details are on that website just drop me a line and i can chat through what you need and how i could help you yeah, and let's talk about your work in schools now. So you you have been started going into schools, doing a workshop with school children. Um, tell us what the workshop sort of involves. Okay, well, if I'm lucky enough to have support, then I'll go in with an entomologist and we'll do a bug hunt first and see what's in the school grounds. And then we'll do an insect collage workshop where every child will collage their own insect out of magazines. Um, and um, I can tailor-make the collage workshops to last any time that the school has available. And all the children end up with a picture at the end of the session. And and it's um, what sort of responses have you been getting from the children about these workshops? Amazing responses. And um, there was a school I went into the other week and all the children at lunch break went out on their own insect hunt and oh. then came rushing up and showed me what they'd found. And it's the same in my neighbourhood. All the children know because I put posters <laughs> outside my house. So they'll bang on the door if they find something interesting and show me the insects that we've got on our street. Um, and I think the best feedback I had was when I was putting the rubbish out one day, a lady stopped me and asked me if I'd made the posters. And she said since I'd started putting the posters up in my windows, she stopped squashing insects and now oh, she looks amazing. at them instead. So I oh. think that's the aim of the project. Yeah, getting people to recognise because, you know, I think butterflies, like, um, you know, in particular, we are like, okay, they're very pretty. We like seeing a butterfly. But like you said, a lot of the, the little beetles or the little grubs, we sort of like, oh, what's that? You know, is that safe? Is that healthy? Is that hygienic? Is that icky? But actually, from what you've said, a lot of them are actually helping to keep things clean because they're dealing with dung or they're dealing with rotting food or whatever. Like they're important to keep. Otherwise, we'd be up to our knees and waste that the insects are so important to get rid of yeah they're free helpers <laughs> so we really need to look after them and we can't survive without insects it's just they're small so they're easy to ignore but we cannot survive without them they do so many vital jobs for us and there's a lot more I think out there you were saying than people realize you know like even a small patch like you said you went into your garden you realized you have, you have over 200 types of insects in your quite small garden you know and on a school grounds people might think oh it's mostly tarmac you know there's not going to be many bugs here but actually there's always more than you think there's always more than you think and also if you make really small changes about how you manage those grounds so if you leave piles of dead sticks or you have a log pile um, and you let that grass grow just that bit longer and you don't use chemicals you will notice wildlife starting to creep into that space and I find that magical we don't have to do that much to invite nature in and then the joy of watching it it's it's amazing to see what will come in and, and then we can observe it. And I think you said there's sort of a, a definite movement moving away from, you know, a, a chemical heavy way of gardening and making everything kind of very nice and neat and proper and actually being a little bit lazy is good, actually good in the garden in terms of encouraging 
um, you know, I didn't know that there were bugs that, you know, ate or slugs and snails. And so that's then good for your for the plants if you're growing vegetables. Yes, and I don't deadhead anymore. I used to <laughs> fanatically deadhead my plants and take all the waste to the tip. And now I leave the plants dead on their stems for a lot longer. And we've had goldfinches coming down and oh. taking seed heads. Or there's a plant in my garden, I don't even know what it's called, but it, the seed heads are kind of fluffy. And they come down and they take the, that fluff. I'm assuming they use it in their nests. So things that I would have done before, just out of habit, because I thought if I had a garden and I was a grown-up and responsible, I should keep it neat. And just letting it go a little bit wild, not not completely wild, just a little bit, I can see that that's giving um, nature a chance to make beds and hide in it and live in it and eat from it. So it makes me feel really good. No, well, that's lovely. And yeah, even small, even small things like window gardens or small patches of of left left you know tarmac that you leave if you eat you know insects can survive there if you're even if you leave the ground cover like you said or leave the piles of leaves um yeah and you were telling me with the collages you do with the children um you don't you know do you make them sort of stick to a particular insects absolutely not <laughs> no I mean I have to be accurate because mine are used as a guide yes so for me it's vital but for the children of course not so I mean there are some kids that love doing everything accurately and are really fastidious and that's fantastic but there's other children that just like doing something a bit crazy so no not of course not it's up to the child and how they like to make artwork whether they make a crazy insect or a very accurate one and so remind people how they can get in touch with you if there's like a particular um yeah if there's a if there's a school listening who's like oh you know that sounds great you could come do a session you were saying to me off air that you often do like a morning session like before or after the break so it sort of take it can be you know about an hour hour and a half um so if there's how can people get in touch with you or if they want to commission you to do specific requests or buy your buy your posters I think the easiest way is just to go to the buzzandscuttle.com website and go to the contact page and then there's my email and you can drop me a line. I think that's the easiest thing to do. And I mean, yeah, these illustrations are beautiful. I definitely recommend looking them up because I'm not doing them justice over the medium of radio. Um, yeah, I mean, final couple of questions. What's your, what's your favourite insect? Ah, well, I've got green tortoise bugs in my garden. Beetles, I should say, sorry. <laughs> green, green tortoise beetles. Um, and they live on my mint plants. So uh, maybe 10 years ago, I would have got really upset that my mint had holes in it and I would have tried to work out what was eating it and got really angry and tried to get rid of the insect. But nowadays, I look on this completely differently. So as soon as I see a hole in a leaf, I start trying to search out what's made the hole. You're and like, hooray! Yeah, I'm, I am. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeding an insect. And underneath at the um, mint leaves, I found the strangest larvae. It was kind of green and spiky looking. So I kept some mint in a vase under a cake dome in my in my kitchen and watched it transform over a few weeks into the most beautiful little green oh that's quite a nice way of doing it I never thought of that sort of keeping it safe exactly so I now often see green tortoise beetles on my mint plants and I grow extra mint to feed them that's gorgeous. And do you have like a sort of favourite insect fact that you think people don't really know? Or have we covered it all already? I suppose the in- interesting metamorphosis stories about how shield bugs split their their jackets and all those things. I mean, I didn't know what a baby ladybird looked like. Until what, I... what does it look like? Can well, they're it? kind of strange looking. If, if you do a Google search, just put 
inst- um, sorry, put ladybird larvae on, and they're kind of like dark grey with different orange patches depending on the species, but they look quite alien. And I think, oh yeah, I'm looking at it now. One of them looks like a school bus, and the others, yeah, just like orange and black. You wouldn't think they're a ladybird. And no. again, I think people see those and they squash them thinking they're revolting, slightly strange looking grubs. And they don't realise they're squashing ladybirds. So, yeah, that, that's the thing that I'm focusing on now is trying to make people realise how cool the babies are. That's so cool. Yeah, they're all spiky and fluffy as well. And then ladybirds are obviously like so shiny and smooth. Gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming in and teaching us all about different bugs and also, yeah, how we can use art to raise awareness. It sounds like you're doing an amazing work and making a difference. Um, <clears throat> sorry, is there any uh, final messages you want to leave our listeners or any final words? I guess just let your grass grow and <laughs> don't dig as much and enjoy the garden being just slightly messier than it used to be and um, watch the insects come, I guess. Yeah, just enjoy the insects. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Marion. Have thank a you. lovely rest of your day. This is the podcast version of One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show, broadcast every Tuesday at 11am on BCFM Radio, available on 93.2 FM, on digital radio and on the BCFM website. The show was produced and presented by Shona Jemfrey. You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.